I'm not a very creative writer. I had to experience something or see see it happening to another person or hear it as a story before I'm able to recast it as a um, as a book. I don't just write fiction. Each of my books have got a lesson or a moral. And I know it's an arrogant statement to make, but I can't I can't just write in a vacuum. I base my experience from society. So I put a lot of myself in my book. I write about Africa. People ask me to write books about England. I say, I'm not going to write books about England because that's been done by white people anyway. Who's going to write my own? So there's plenty there where it comes from. As long as I go on writing, it's going to be African novels. I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Bucci Emichetta's The Bride Price. We also talk to two experts, Abin Abusia and Margaret Busby. At the start of the episode, we heard an excerpt of Bucci Emichetta herself from an interview for Radio Netherlands in 1984, which we found on the very cool Radio Netherlands archive online. Okay, I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Bucci Emichetta. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, tell us about Bucci Emichetta. Bucci Emichetta was born Florence Onyebuchi Emichetta in Lagos on the 21st of July 1944 to Igbo parents. She grew up in a poor household and was kept at home while her younger brother went to school until she managed to persuade her parents that it was worthwhile for her to be educated. But the family circumstances worsened when her father died when she was eight or nine. Thanks to her winning a scholarship to the prestigious Methodist Girls High School when she was 10, her education continued. But her mother also died in her first year there, and she lived with various distant relatives when not at school after that. She was married in 1960 at the age of 16 to Sylvester Onwardi, to whom she had been betrothed since she was 11. In 1962, With two children already, she followed her husband to London, where he was studying. She had dreamed of becoming a storyteller since young, and she began writing in her spare time. But her husband resented this. In fact, the marriage was unhappy and at times violent. Emma Chetta eventually left her husband, and by 22, she was a single mother to five children. But hers is a story of incredible overcoming. She worked full-time as a librarian in London, studied for a degree in sociology, and wrote on the side. She began writing a regular column for The New Statesman, which formed the basis for her first novel, In the Ditch, which was published in 1972. In all, Emma Chetta wrote 16 novels, three children's stories, articles, and television plays. Much of her work is semi-autobiographical and illuminates the experiences and hardships of Black African women in Africa and Britain. She was named one of Granta's Best of Young British Novelists in 1983 and was awarded an OBE for Services to Literature in 2005. Tragedy marked her later life, much as it had marked her earlier life. Two of her daughters died from illness and she had a major stroke in 2004 that left her unable to write or lecture. She died on the 25th of January 2017 at the age of 72. As for Cat Corner... We have another fun (laughs) edition. While I don't have any photographs of Bucci Emichetta with cats, I do have a number of illustrations from a book that she wrote for children called Titch the Cat. (laughs) The blurb for the story reads, Just an ordinary black family living in London that is as ordinary as five growing and self-willed children and their long-suffering mother can ever be (laughs) until one day when the mischievous little kitten came to live with them. 
So it's about her and her family's adoption of a small kitten. They didn't have any pets, and the promise was that they would get one when they moved into a proper house of their own after having lived in like tenement buildings and basically slum council houses. So they finally move into their own house, and that's when they get this kitten. And on that note, Alicia, what's the bride price about, and what's the story behind it? Although The Bride Price was the third book that Bucci Emichetta published, it was the first that she wrote. As the story goes, she had asked her by then abusive husband, Sylvester Onwardi, to read the manuscript. Instead, he burned it. This prompted her to finally leave her husband, five children in tow, and five years later, in 1976, The Bride Price was finally reconstructed and published. It was published by Allison and Busby in the UK, an independent publishing house established by Clive Allison and Margaret Busby. We're very grateful to have Margaret Busby speaking on this episode about being the publisher and editor of The Bride Price. It was also published in the U.S. by George Brazeler. Emichetta had already established a presence in literary realms, and The Bride Price was well-received by critics. But what of The Bride Price itself? If a girl's bride price goes unpaid, she will die in childbirth. This theme is introduced early in the book as a traditional Igbo belief, and it threads across the novel. The bride price is a payment that a successful suitor makes to the guardian of a girl in order to marry her. The girl, whose bride price goes unpaid in this story, is Akuna. There is a measure of irony here, as her name means father's wealth, reflecting the great hope instilled from birth in her capacity to fetch her father a high bride price. Yet early in the story, her own father dies. Ezekiel Odia had been a quiet, considerate man, and the lives of his family members changed drastically after his death. Ma Blackie, his widow, Na Ndo, his son, and Akuna, his daughter, must leave their home in the city of Lagos, Nigeria, and enter village life. The village to which they go is Ibuza, where the brother of Akuna's deceased father becomes her guardian, i.e. her uncle becomes her guardian. His name, shout out to Things Fall Apart, is Okonkwo, with Okonkwo as her new guardian, Akuna comes of age and receives rather heated demands for marriage. As an educated girl, she promises to bring her new guardian a high bride price. But Akuna is kidnapped. Before the kidnapper, Okoboshi, can consummate the marriage, Akuna is then dramatically rescued by the man she loves. There is no rom-com ending, however, for this book. For the man, Chike is a descendant of slaves, and his offers to pay Akuna's bride price are rejected. She then dies in childbirth. So it was, the book tells us, in an intentionally unsettling way, that Chike and Akuna substantiated the traditional superstition they had unknowingly set out to eradicate. And that's a quote. This is no propaganda piece for the practice of setting a bride price. To the contrary, over the course of the story, various Igbo traditional views of slaves, social hierarchy, and the role of women in society clash with elements of modernization in ways that provoke thought and unsettle. This week, we are delighted to hear an extended reflection from Abinabusia. She is a Ghanaian poet and soon-to-be emerita, Rutgers University professor. She co-directed and co-edited the Women Writing Africa Project, and Abina currently serves as Ghana's ambassador to Brazil. I'm delighted to be sharing my reflections on the importance of Buchi Emacheta through my poem on the trials of Buchi, the storyteller. In the introduction to my poetry collection, Traces of a Life, published in 2008 by Ayabia Clark, I meditated on the ways in which, conceptually, African traditions of praise poetry, which call out the deeds of the celebrant, living or dead, have influenced my approach to writing memorial poems. For the writers I wish to honor, these deeds are their works, and I experiment with the use of their titles as a way into crafting the celebration of who they are, the work their writings do, and what both have meant for us, their readers. 
To those poems I wrote for the celebration of Okonkwo, the hero of Things Fall Apart at 50 in 2008, for Ama Ata Edu at 70 in 2012, the passing of Achebe himself in 2013, and Wale Shoyinka at 80 in 2014, in 2017 I added this one for Buchi Emacheta in gratitude. I had met Emacheta in passing a few times and then had the pleasure of spending one long day with her nearly 30 years ago now, on the day she received her honorary degree from Furley Dickinson University. It is a day of joy I treasure having had the privilege of sharing. Many will recognize the titles of her novels and the names of their central characters in the poem which follows. And I refer to the works roughly in the order published between 1972 and 2000. In the context of Emicheta's life and work, the titles of the first three, In the Ditch, Second Class Citizen and The Bride Price, are a gift to a writer who likes to play with words. The Joys of Motherhood, her fifth published work from 1979, is indeed worthy of its place in literary history. Perhaps less familiar will be the refrain made up of titles of the stories of her children and youth and one of her radio plays, Titch the Cat, Nowhere to Play, For This Family Bargain, and A Wrestling Match. Only her one non-fictional autobiography, Head Above Water, published in 1984, is referred to truly out of sequence, reserved at the end for the coda. The title of the poem itself, a poem for the trials of Bucci the storyteller, reflects on the elemental nature of her struggles and how, fundamentally, she thought of herself. For Bucci Emicheta, July 1944 to January 2017. You didn't stay in the ditch as a second-class citizen when the price you paid as a bride was too high. What can be born of trial by fire? Bucci's story, Ada's story, her mother's story, my story. Titch the cat has nowhere to play for this family bargain is a wrestling match. A storyteller, to speak for all slave girls running, all haunting moonlight brides who believe enough the joys of motherhood, though our own freedoms be tried by water. Bucci's story, Nu Ego's story, my mother's story, my story. Titch the cat has nowhere to play, for this family bargain is a wrestling match. To demand of those with destination Biafra, what is your loyalty? How do you love? Can Naira power atone for the rape of Shavi when trying visitations come shrieking through the air? Bucci's story, Debbie's story, our mother's story, our story. Titch the cat has nowhere to play, for this family bargain is a wrestling match. To inquire... What double yoke can we carry through what kind of marriage? What kind of family do we walk this earth with? The new tribe on trial. Bucci's story, Kehindi's story, our daughter's story, our story. Teach the cat has nowhere to play, for this family bargain is a wrestling match. Untangling your furious truths against time, demanding who is greater than any maddening God or can ever defeat their chi. For us, you kept your head above water until all your naughty stories in the end ran out. So, Erica, what were some of your impressions reading this book? One thing that made a huge impression on me was having read something of Bucci Machetta's biography, 
how much she seemed to take from her life in crafting the story. Small details like the main character, Akuna, having a younger brother whose schooling is privileged, you know. But then also greater details like the father dying from a wound in his foot that he sustained in Burma fighting for Lord Mountbatten's army in World War II. That's exactly how Buccia Machete's father actually died. I thought that was an interesting move. This is not the first time we've had these kinds of autobiographical resonances happening. Doris Lessing, for example, there's huge, huge overlaps between Anna Wolfe and Lessing herself. Oh, that reminds me of something <laughs> digressive that I read. <laughs> it was a quote from a review. Yeah. One of the ways of correcting one's faulty image of the African woman would be through the reading of creative literature. But even there, one is in danger of acquiring biased information. What one should really look for is the African woman seen from the inside, in other words, rendered by women. However, African women writers are few and far between. It is all the more exciting to come across Nigerian Buchi Emacheta. Oh, what? What? Yeah. The African woman? <laughs> yeah, it kind of resonated oh. with that way that Doris Lessing was read, but then it also taps into this whole other aspect of not only is she representing a woman from the inside, it's a woman on behalf of a whole continent of women. <laughs> Gosh, she must have dealt with this a whole lot. People looking at her work as a certain kind of testimony or witness about like the reality of all African women. Yeah. As though there's a, such a thing as the African woman, as though there aren't hundreds of millions of African women with complex perspectives and lives and identities and all different kinds of experiences. That's kind of that anthropological view, isn't it? Yeah, it's somehow this anthropological view mixed with the autobiographical curiosity. Look, in terms of autobiography, as I've said, there's these very strong resonances between Bucci Machete's life and her novel. So she invited them to some extent, but that whole other aspect, it's pretty racist. Yeah. So that quotation is from Rolf Salberg, but it's in Cynthia Ward's what they told Bucci Emicheta, oral subjectivity and the joys of otherhood. And there, she makes the claim herself, nearly every article on Emicheta's work invokes the voice, in quotes, and perspective, in quotes, of, quote, <laughs> the African woman. Um. And then this academic article is kind of interrogating that by drawing on a conversation that emphasizes that side of things, but then from African literary critics who are saying, Actually, there are really reductive aspects of Emicheta's work. You mean that she does do that kind of reductive work? Well, they are emphasizing reductive elements in her work itself. And I think it's connected to a critique of that work then being read as representative of the African woman. Mm. Partly because mm. some of the people surveyed in this article claim that initially she's actually bringing a very Western view because she's been in the UK huh. and actually that the bride price itself represents traditional Igbo beliefs in reductive, morally condemning ways. It's funny you should mention that because that was something that I noticed and that I felt kind of palpably as I was reading the novel, especially at the beginning. I think we're probably going to be comparing the bride price to things fall apart quite a bit because we're reading them in close proximity to each other. And they're both set amongst Igbo people in mm. Nigeria at different times historically. But there are comparisons to be drawn. And unlike things fall apart, where I feel like there's a kind of a, a subtler introduction to the Umorphia clan I had a very strong sense in this novel of somebody going out of a situation and drawing me in as an outsider. Like I felt like I was being addressed as a foreigner and having things explained to me. Did you feel that way? Yes, I did. And that too made me question, how was it different in Things Fall Apart? Because there is also instruction there, but... There's not that kind of defining of terms. Like at the end yes. of my edition of Things Fall Apart, there's a glossary with Igbo terms and then they're explained in English. And that wasn't something that Achebe wanted actually because the meaning of those words comes through in the context. He doesn't offer definitions where she pretty directly does actually. On the other hand, by specifically speaking 
beyond her context, there seems to be an aim to represent. Yeah. And subsequent writers such as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie have pointed to Emicheta as a gatekeeper who opened up opportunities for them. As she put it in a Facebook post after Emicheta had died, Buchi Emicheta, we are able to speak because you first spoke. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your art. So that aim to give voice maybe has some beneficial aspects. I think it's worth bearing in mind here that at the time that Emicheta was writing, there weren't very many Black African women being published and certainly not being published in Britain. There were some like Flora Nwapa, and Nwapa published her own work in Nigeria, which is pretty amazing. Which Emicheta then did too, right? Yes, she went on to found her own publishing house with her son. Yeah. And there were other writers elsewhere like Bessie Head in Botswana and South Africa and Miriam Tlali in South Africa. She wasn't the first, but she was an important figure in West African literature and Black British literature specifically. And it was important that she was a woman because many of those earlier African writers of that period, like Chinua Achebe and Wole Shoyinka, were men. And ironically, within Igbo culture, the storytellers traditionally have been women. Emicheta grew up with like her aunt telling stories and she wanted to be a storyteller. And she also wanted to make money from her writing. It's an interesting thing that she was doing. She wasn't caught up in Mm. the same kinds of questions that Doris Lessing was caught up in, playing with the form of the novel. Like Emma Chetta is not interested in that, really. She's playing a different game. And I think she's much more concerned with the themes that she's talking about, with the real experiences of real people that she's trying to kind of get at. And one of those things, or the primary one really, is the question of gender and of women and how black women, African Mm. women specifically, find themselves in this overlapping space where they are on the losing side of the gender dynamic and of the racial dynamic. That representation of a doubled oppression is part of why the New York Public Library chose this book to Mm. be on its list. And they draw more global connections from this particular instance that's being described in Nigeria in Emicheta's work. It's saying, although rooted in the particular experience of Nigerian women, Emicheta's writing has universal application for women living in rapidly modernizing cultures throughout the world. Yes, this thing of like the moment of modernization, because this novel is set in like the 1940s, right? 1950s, I think. It's just before the movement towards decolonization is really gaining steam. It's on the cusp of change. And in many ways, Akuna is caught between tradition and modernity. She is schooled in Christian missionary schools, but she is still subject to quite oppressive and restrictive Igbo customs in which she is not valued, or if her education is valued, it's only insofar as it might increase her bride price, her monetary value. So from the beginning, we have the sense of these two different locales that represent these two ways of being, right? Modernity, urban life in Lagos, and that's where Akuna is raised, And then her parents' ancestral home, the village of Ibuza, and that's a rural place that is much more traditional, where men can still kidnap a woman and then she has to be his wife. They can chop off a lock of her hair and then she belongs to him like an object, like a possession. Mm. And Akuna finds herself having to move from the urban to the rural because her father dies and because her mother almost gets engulfed by this traditional world, having to marry her husband's brother. And then the stakes involved for her of having to survive become such that she toes the line. Well, her mother seems to find a kind of fulfillment in this return to village life that Akuna maybe doesn't. And partly her mother had been wanting to have another child and unable to with her prior husband. And with Okonkwo, 
she does become pregnant. So this is some a kind of fulfillment for herself. Yeah. Even before her husband had died, she had been staying with Okonkwo's family, right? Yeah. And during that time, there was one episode where Okonkwo's treating his newest bride with a lot of favor and <laughs> affection. And there's a moment of jealousy that's identified as jealousy. And I did wonder if that was some foreshadowing of an actual element of desire or there's something that she wanted there. Yeah, yeah. And that she was lacking. But she does seem to find a kind of fulfillment and absorption here. But I think the experience of Akuna is a different one than her Absolutely. mother. Because her mother comes from that village. Yes. But Akuna goes back to it and finds herself at odds. Even before that, though, when her father dies, she has to go through this whole process of performing these quite traditional roles. And she doesn't know all of the details of her father's family tree. There's some humor here in her slight outsiderness. Here's a quotation from the novel. Akuna and Nando were the chief mourners. Their cries of grief were expected to be more convincing than those of the others, for was it not their father who had died? Their own cries must be made in the most artistic way, because one loses one's father only once. Akuna had seen her mother cry at the deaths of relatives, and had heard stories of how relatives mourn their lost loved ones. She did not know her father's genealogical tree in detail, so she sang out of only what she knew. Then it goes on, she did not stop, not even when the other mourners became more subdued. Nobody could stop her, for this was what was expected of a daughter. People later remarked that for a girl not born in Ibuza, she did not do too badly. <laughs> so she's got this real palpable sense of what is being expected of her. It does not come naturally to her. She's always negotiating these different tendencies within herself. Yeah, she has a clear sense of duty and of obligations. Even from the start, she has a sense of her identity that's wrapped up with what kind of value she'll bring to her father, what her bride price will be. But she's a city girl and she's different. That was one aspect, if I'm comparing it to Achebe's Things Fall Apart, that I did sort of enjoy, which was some of the descriptions like in this book, we hear about Yoruba and Hausa people as well as Igbo people. And there's maybe a slightly wider view at times signaled of life in Nigeria. Now, as you mentioned, it's also a different moment historically, but starting in Lagos and then having characters go to the village who have different perspectives on it and who are received in different ways, that was mm. very interesting to me. I loved the funeral scene. It seems to me that there are better and worse ways to mourn. <laughs> and I <laughs> just think, yeah, people should put ashes on themselves and cry and maybe not should, but I think there's something really lovely about that. And even the artistry to it, there's just something performative that seems so mm. nice and apt and quiet, proper funerals. Of course, those are really meaningful too, but it's, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I like the humor that came through in those sorts of moments. Yeah. I really like the humor in the narrator's voice. And actually, there were some moments that I laughed out loud. I think right <laughs> at the beginning, <laughs> when the narrator is talking about Akuna as a child and how she got sick all the time. <laughs> It says, if a child at the other end of Akinwunmi Street had chickenpox, Akuna was bound to catch it. If someone else at the bottom of the yard had malaria, Akuna would have her share too. And then this one made me laugh so much. For her, it was forever a story of today foot, tomorrow head, the day <laughs> after neck. <laughs> See, I laughed at the malaria bit because while chicken pox are contagious, obviously malaria is not. I mean, malaria yes. is through the mosquito bite, but not if you're hanging out with another kid who's. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It emphasized just how susceptible she was. <laughs> and even in the funeral scene, these differences are highlighted not just through her experience, but in terms of Christian hymns being introduced alongside traditional practices and mm. I liked this quote because it showed how that juxtaposition maybe offers its own critique. <laughs> During a particularly long lull, another singing was heard from the next compound. Those were Christian hymns, and though sung in Igbo to a heavily Africanized beat, they still had far to go before they could compete with the traditional death songs. <laughs> that juxtapositioning, that kind of jarring and evaluation, you know, when do you use one? When do you use another? How does yes. it fulfill or fit with life? I enjoyed that aspect of this book. Yeah. It's though, this is a few generations on from what happens and things fall apart. Yeah. 
So we see the church and Igbo culture having reached some sort of interesting dynamic where the Christian church is good for some things and Igbo culture is good for other things. So there's a section where the narrator is describing Ibuza. It says, It was never long before a visitor to Ibuza could tell, from the culture, the traditions, the mode of keeping records, the superstitions, that this was an Igbo town. What was more difficult to make out was whether to classify the people as Christians or pagans. Many people went to church, and about three-quarters of those who did attended the Catholic Church, for there was a general belief in Ibuza in things mysterious. The church missionary society service was too plain. The sermon was usually preached by an African, and in most cases an African from their own town, and such sermons did not carry much weight with the faithful of Ibuza. A sermon preached by an Irish father, full of the <laughs> mystic incantations that formed part of the rigmarole of Catholicism, imparted to the Ibuza citizens the feeling that they had been spoken to by God Almighty himself. They might not be able to follow or understand the Latin Mass, but the glamour of the robes of the Reverend Father, the cloying smell of the incense, the Indian-sounding chants, all helped to mystify and convince the ignorant. So there's this real kind of wryness in describing what's going on here. And I found that kind of interesting. There was a lightness of touch in this. That wasn't in Things Fall Apart, but there are these interesting resonances, I think. I like that. And I like how it feels like a very humane wryness. Like mm. it sort of transcends a cultural moment in a relatable way. There are other moments that have this culture transcending aspect that are pretty powerful. And partly I see that in the funeral where Akuna looks at her father's corpse and she's so struck by how different this body is to the one she had just seen mm -hmm. days ago. And that's, I think, an experience anyone who has seen someone they love who's dead knows. Mm -hmm. It's a really powerful thing. And moments like that, maybe there's an autobiographical reservoir that's being drawn from, but moments like that do have poignancy. Absolutely. Like she says, why has he shrunken so? What have they mm. done to my father? The person in that suit looks so different from our father who walked out of this very room only three weeks ago telling us to be good children. And then I'm skipping. He looked different in death. Her father had gone. It's pretty evocative to think of this child having that encounter and having that moment. There were several moments that I found pretty evocative in those ways. That was definitely one of them. Hmm. Another one was when she gets her period for the first time. One thing that I found really interesting was the social aspects of the individual life in this way. Like everybody knows and her brother is oh, like yeah. slaughtering a chicken. Well, I mean, that's later on. She hides it because she knows as soon as she, if people know that she is menstruating, she's on the market. So she hides it and her teacher, lover... He was not so comfortable about that. That was I was that not was, either. <laughs> that was troubling. Helps her to hide it. But then once everybody finds out, it's this really big communal thing and everybody is celebrating. It's like everybody knows everybody's business, you know? The book says, nothing was hidden in Ibuza. It was the duty of every member of the town to find out and know his neighbor's business. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the ways that that knowledge becomes problematic is when she is kidnapped and defends herself from having the marriage consummated. Well, actually like being assaulted, basically. Yeah, this man has kidnapped her and the way to make the marriage official without having paid the bride price is to take her and that may be by force. And in this case, it, it is playing out that mm. way. And so she defends herself by claiming she's already lost her virginity. Being disvirgined. Being disvirgined. I like that phrasing. It was interesting. And that news then spreads and sort of mars her reputation forever. Now, it is interesting that because her beloved is, on the one hand, he comes from this background of being the descendant of slaves. And so then there's this social hierarchy element playing out. But on the other hand, he's her teacher. So I didn't feel like, ah, oh, yes, her right to be with the one she loves. Instead, I felt like, ah. Uh, well, a little sympathetic for tradition in some respects in this instance. Yeah, it wasn't about his background as the descendant of slaves. That's the Osu, the ones who first became the converts in Things Fall Apart, actually. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. He starts off, he's like a womanizer, right? First of yes. all, he's sleeping with other people's young wives. And then he kind of takes a shine to Akuna. But I'm never quite convinced 
you know, at one point the narrator says that if it hadn't been forbidden, he might have just like gone on to some other person yeah, after that. But he finds himself getting drawn towards Akuna. I didn't buy that this was like true love. Somehow I remained suspicious. And of course, I'm bringing my own, you know, 21st century eyes to this. And I feel like even a 24-year-old being drawn to a 15-year-old in this way, I find troubling. Although that age gap didn't seem to be an issue in the book. No. But I didn't think the book resolved his transition from womanizer to uh, beloved. And I also don't like, well, it doesn't seem particularly empowering to me when someone swoops in to save someone else. Like <laughs> that's <laughs> from a position of power. Yeah, I agree. It was playing into certain kinds of romantic stereotypes there, knight, damsel in distress kind of a dynamic. But one thing that their relationship does bring out is just how entrenched those old social strata, those classes are, mm -hmm. how a horrible person who would pay a lesser bride price would be preferred over a person who is beloved, who is rich, who can pay you know, many times that same bride price just because he is a descendant of enslaved people. In addition to the fact that this whole bride price thing just carries on and like the women are objectified and turned into sources of capital and don't get a say in anything. It's that stuff, the gender dynamics, those power dynamics persist. Despite my personal qualms about Chike, Akuna does want him to be the one that she marries. And so in terms mm. of individual agency, that is the direction she's headed. And that's what's really stifled and resisted to the mm. point where her family rejects the bride prices that he offers. And I did find the ending of this novel, it takes this didactic turn that I didn't quite expect. Every girl born in Ibuza after Akuna's death was told her story to reinforce the old taboos of the land. If a girl wished to live long and see her children's children, she must accept her husband chosen for her by her people, and the bride price must be paid. If the bride price was not paid, she would never survive the birth of her first child. It was a psychological hold over every girl that would continue to exist, even in the face of every modernization, until the present day. I didn't know what was happening with that ending either, because I, I left feeling like, huh? What? <laughs> what? After all this, like, yeah. you don't get a happy ending? And yeah. I, I wondered, what is Emicheta wanting to leave us with? The feeling is one of, like, deep ambivalence. That's how I felt at the end. The traditional superstition, as she calls it, still wins. Yeah. And so what is that reflecting? And then she does offer this explanation that it's a psychological hold, which is a kind of a more Western explanation, perhaps, or modern explanation or scientific or something like that. And she brings up that specific language of modernization. And this would continue even in the face of every modernization until the present day. So there seems to be a grappling with tradition and modernization that's pretty direct. But it's fascinating that the traditional superstition, as she calls it, wins out. Yeah, and I think that at the end, I came to realize just how ironic the title was, that it's about a bride price that isn't paid, but it's also about the price that is paid by yeah. the bride. It's about the costs involved. We are so excited to introduce our next guest. Margaret Busby is a publishing legend. She was the youngest and first black woman publisher in Britain when she co-founded her publishing house, Allison and Busby, in 1967. Since then, she has pioneered, championed, and inspired black British writers and writing. Margaret compiled the landmark collection, Daughters of Africa, in 1992 an anthology of writing by over 200 women authors of African descent, including Buchi and Macheta, and the follow-up, New Daughters of Africa, in 2019, which featured a further 200-plus writers. We interviewed her about her editorial and publishing relationship with Buchi and Macheta. 
Margaret, welcome to Literate. We are privileged and honored to have you talking to us, truly. Let's start off with a very broad question. When did you first read Bucci Emicheta's work, and how did you come to be her editor and publisher? Well, I came across Bucci for the first time in the early 1970s. That's when I first happened upon her writing, and that was because she had a a column in the New Statesman, which is a, a British magazine, and that was when she came to my notice. And it was, I suppose it was the fact that we both were from West Africa. We were both young West African women. I'm from Ghana. She's from Nigeria. And we were both trying to make our way in the conventional literary Britain from a very unconventional perspective. So I connected with her. The Bride Price was actually the first novel that Bucci wrote. But that was the manuscript that her husband destroyed. And so she had to rework it later. And that was one that we published at Alison and Busby. And I was her editor there. She was, at that time, bringing up her young children on her own because she had separated from her husband. And we were both growing in the literary world together, if you like. I was probably her earliest experience of a hands-on editor. So I was doing everything from editing her work, writing blurbs. I did want some of the covers. Sometimes if there was so much editing, a book needed retyping, I retyped it. And she trusted me. That was what made it work, I think. Most of her early novels were published by Alison and Busby, and I was her editor for those early books. The last time I saw her, she was in a care home because it was after she had had a stroke. And I went to visit her with her son, Sylvester. It was a few years before she died, maybe in the 2010 or after that. And just to remember that the strength of the career she had until she had those health issues is always amazing and an encouragement to anybody who wants to become a writer because she had to do all of the things she did and become a wonderful writer whilst challenged by a lot of personal things, including just the problems of having to survive in Britain as a black woman on your own with no money in London and young children. And she did that in a remarkable way. And she was an example to a lot of women and a lot of black women and a lot of African women took encouragement from what she was able to achieve. That's so inspiring and impressive, really, to see people facing formidable obstacles and being productive, being creative in the midst of that. Mm. And I'm also fascinated by your relationship with her. In your obituary for Bucci Amacheta in The Guardian, you noted how moved you were when she dedicated The Slave Girl to you in 1977, which was the book she published after The Bride Price. And I think that signaled to me this sense that you're already mm-hmm. touching on somewhat of the depth of your editorial relationship, being professional, but also personal in some ways. And we would love to hear you talk a little bit more about what is that relationship like? What was it like with Bucci Amicetta? It was a very mutually trusting relationship, if you like. Obviously, I was young as a publisher as well. I, I conceived my publishing company when I was not even of age, when I was still at university. So we were both in our early 20s. If you like, we were developing a relationship as we went along. It was the first time I'd been in publishing. I didn't have a very long record when we began publishing Gucci. And I was probably her first long-term experience of an editor. So in later years, she might not have found that sort of editorial support because I wouldn't imagine today many editors would put as much effort into not only the editing of the work or the publishing of the work, but the propagating of the work in every way so that she did get attention from the press because we were a small company, just two or three people. We didn't have a huge staff, so we had to make sure the books were edited, publicized and reviewed in whatever way we could. So it was a relationship on every level. and. I do think the editorial relationship anyway is really quite a unique one in terms of any sort of job. Because if you do it well, people don't know what you've done. They don't know you exist. All they will say is, what a good book that is. What a wonderful writer that is. They don't know what input there has been editorially. Whether you're Bucci Machetta or Tony Morrison, there's an editor in the background who is acting in a lot of ways as the third eye. You need a bit of distance after you've written the book, whatever it is, and you need somebody to say, well, 
it doesn't work here or perhaps what are you trying to do there and to give you feedback that you can work on. And sometimes, you know, you have such a trusting relationship that you might say to the author, well, I think you need to work on this here. And the author might say, well, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) And and that has happened. So there is a lot of blurring of lines. So in retrospect, I can't say to you, well, that word there is because I suggested it to Bucci. or whatever, but there was that collaborative feeling, as there always is about a a good editor-author relationship. And it's not that the editor is taking anything away from the author, but what you're trying to do is help the author say what they want to say in the best possible way. So you're trying to show where things work well and where things don't work well. It is a close relationship, it's a trusting relationship, and it works sometimes best with a writer who's developing and you're developing with them and helping them grow. So you hope that each book will be a stepping stone towards getting better. So they're learning from each book, from the way it's received. So there are a lot of different inputs into what makes a writer improve. So however you look at it, it's a close relationship. It's a personal relationship as well, because There were things that obviously happened to me as a black African woman in London that Bucci would relate to or vice versa. I mean, I I can remember very clearly, for example, some of the review coverage that Alison and Busby got. And it was really almost as if I was some sort of freak. You know, the headlines would say, girl from Ghana goes into publishing. And it's that feeling that being a literate African, West African woman, whether it was Bucci or me, it was some sort of freak quality about that, as if they didn't expect African women to be able to read or write. So we shared a lot of those sorts of vibes, and we had to trust each other in terms of how the books were presented and how they were edited. And sometimes you don't have any control over how they're received. And it'd be interesting to know whether the way Butch's books are being read now is very different from the way they were being read 30 or 40 years ago. What you've been saying really leads so perfectly into our next question, which is, what was it like to publish Bucci and Machete's work in the 1970s in Britain? Can you tell us a little bit more about how it was received and, yeah, what just what it was like in that context? Well, it may be. Be that I'm not the best person to tell you that because I was in the middle of doing it. I had nothing to compare it with. It's only in retrospect people say, oh, well, you were the youngest and the first black woman publisher. Well, at the time, I was not thinking I'm the youngest and the first black woman. I was just doing it. But it was not a known thing at that time, nor was it a sort of usual thing to have an African woman publisher and an African woman writer in collaboration, which didn't mean to say there weren't any. I mean, for example, Flora Nwapa from Nigeria was both a writer and a publisher, as was Efua Sutherland from Ghana. So those possibilities were always there. But how they were perceived in London or in the British literary context, it's hard to tell when you're the person you know, in the middle of doing it. I mean, now it might seem less of a challenge or more acceptable. But then, you know, we certainly, if you like, stuck out much more because there were not many other people in that situation doing the things that we were doing. It wasn't something that you're conscious of. You don't go through every day thinking, gosh, here I am, a West African woman, young woman in London again on my own and facing all these challenges. You're just doing it. You're defying the odds. You're like Bucci making your way against all sorts of obstacles and surviving. And that's what she had to do. That's what I had to do from my side. So in a way, we were living parallel challenges. Although we were very different in terms of our background, we were living in a society that had all sorts of views about what we should be or who we should be or where we had come from or what African people were like anyway. It's maybe easier to look back on, but at the time we were just involved in doing what we believed we wanted to do. And that's one of the reasons I suppose I wanted to take on Bucci's work, because I wanted to get her message out there. There were not many people writing about that. And it wasn't just the message of surviving in the British situation. It was that mixture of talking about her feelings, her background as an African woman in Africa, in Nigeria, as well as an African woman in London. So that there were those two elements to her writing, which come out in most of her books in one way or another. 
there were all those things that we were both dealing with. And it just meant that we were being nonconformist, if you like, in a very conventional literary scene. We were different. So with the benefits of hindsight, could you speak a little about the significance of Emicheta's writing for British and African literature, maybe with reference to the Daughters of Africa and New Daughters of Africa, but also beyond that? I think the significance of Bucci's writing is that she has had such profound influence on a lot of people. A lot of people who are writers, whether you're talking about Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, or people who just see her as an example of how one can survive, how one can write the challenges that you're faced with if you're in a situation that sometimes, as we know, is hostile to your survival. People who discover her, I think, feel empowered. Chimamanda, after Bucci died, said things that were quite moving. I can't offhand remember them, but they were to do with the fact that because she had spoken, it enabled people coming after her to speak. And so it was that feeling that she did things, she broke down barriers so that other people could come through. And that applies to people in this country, women and women in Africa, women in Nigeria. It was something that makes it seem that anything is possible because she did not come from a traditional background that made it seem that she should be a, a writer. And I can remember Bucci was never the sort of person, the sort of woman who thought, well, writing is about living in an ivory tower and you know you starve for your craft. No, she was determined she was going to make money from it. And she did. Sometimes you can challenge the conventions because you don't know what they are. And once you've done that, then other people see it can be done. If you'd said to anybody, speaking for myself, that, okay, a 20-year-old Ghanaian woman is going to start a published company. It's going to be going in 50 years' time. Nobody would have believed it. And I probably wouldn't have if I'd sat down and thought about it because there was no precedent any more than there was a precedent for somebody saying, well, a woman, single mother of several children, living a hard life in London is going to end up being a revered worldwide writer. So I think a lot of people still can take courage from that, can feel, well, if she did it, it is possible. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but it is possible. And I think that is something that we have to admire in her legacy. That's a wonderful response. Thank you. I'd like to shift slightly and to focus more on The Bride Price, the novel specifically. Do you think that this is one of the books of the 20th century? And would you pick it out of Bucci Emicheta's body of work? Or is there something else that you would choose? No, I think The Bride Price is probably well chosen out of Bucci's body of work as one of her most significant novels. And I think that's partly because it was the first she, one she wrote and she had to recreate it after her husband threw it on the fire because of, I suppose, his perceptions of what a wife should be doing. I also love the cover that we had on the Alice and the Busby dish, which is a drawing by uh, Emmanuel Taiwo Jegedi, a Nigerian artist who's, who's still around. He did several of the book covers that we published, including The Slave Girl. But somehow... The clash of cultures, if you like, come together in The Bride Price in a way that I can see why people would respond so positively to it, because she's confronting a lot of different views about marriage and not in a way that you could predict. I mean, there's a poignancy about the book. I'm saying all this without having reread it for a long time. But it certainly got well-reviewed at the time. So the fact that it's still being considered as one of her best books is really quite remarkable. And I think also because it was one of the first books I worked closely on with Bucci. So I have a sort of affection for it from that perspective as well, even though the book that she dedicated to me is also up there as well. But I think The Bride Price, there's a quality to it that depends on the way plot and characterization sort of link and drive the story forward. So, yeah, I can see why people would want to put that as one of the best of her novels. And there's no sentimentality in it as well. There's feeling, there's emotion, and there are a lot of things that could have been 
mawkish, if you like, but are not. I mean, she's somehow pulled off a story which has all sorts of emotional depth and avoided some of the possible pitfalls. So to me, yeah, I would go with the choice of this as being one of Gucci's best novels or, or best love novels. And it's that combination of tragedy and happiness. And there are so many different emotions and so many different ways the story could have gone or ended or diverted. But she has somehow managed to choose the one that has a lasting effect and lasting resonance for the reader. Thank you so much, Margaret. That was wonderful and enriching. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Erica. Alicia, the New York Public Library picked Bucci Amichetta's The Bride Price as one of its books of the century in a category that they called colonialism and its aftermath. Do you agree? Do you think this is one of the books of the century? I don't think that it is, but I think that my reason is partly because I'm skeptical of these categories. I don't want to judge it in relation to a sub-theme of colonialism and its aftermath. I want to judge it in relation to landmarks of modern literature to reference another category that the NYPL uses. I think there are great works of post-colonial literature that win on aesthetic criteria, that win with shared criteria, and they don't need their own special criteria. What is really valuable about reading this book, according to the NYPL, is partly about what it represents Mm. and what's new in the perspective given. To have a Nigerian woman writer who's able and willing to draw on the tradition of the English novel, but also personal experience and knowledge of traditions, Igbo particularly, in Nigeria, to offer a story to a wide readership that does enrich and expand understandings of the world. That is valuable. I think that's true. And I think it's something to be thought about with nuance, ideally, because There are problems that come with this value for representation's sake, but it is also valuable to give voice to experiences. If no one gives voice to a certain aspect of human experience, then it's harder for anyone to maybe have the words with which to think about those experiences or to say things that are more accurate, more nuanced, to continue illuminating parts of our world, parts of our shared history that don't matter any less than any other part. And so... I don't regret reading this. I'm glad that I've read it. And I did enjoy reading it. And I did find it thought-provoking. So I'm glad it's on the NYPL's list. Something else that I would say, though, is when I read scholars analyzing Emichetta's works, they seem to point toward a process of maturation across her writing life. So there's also the question of which book would you pick out of her corpus if you're going to choose one. And I'm not wholly convinced it should be on the list. It wouldn't I don't think be on my list, but I do think it's right to be looking with a wider lens at what counts as good literature Mm. and why, and not merely for representational, historical, documentary kind of reasons. What about you, Erica? Is this one of the books of the century in your view? I agree with a lot of what you said. I think you summed up some of the tensions involved in reading this novel in relation to this idea of the, you know, the books of the century and in this almost ghettoized category of colonialism and its aftermath, like what does this need to represent? I think there's an argument to be made for something like The Joys of Motherhood, which is a much more well-known and more widely commented on book being chosen instead of this. So it is a question I had, why the bride price? Is it because of this kind of modernization, modernity thing that's being staged in it? But I also think there's an argument to be made for the particular Black British experiences that she represents in, say, Second Class Citizen, which is much more closely autobiographical. Because I think that's a really valuable thing. If you want somebody to represent something, maybe not some idea of like traditional... Igbo culture or that in transition, but maybe something that is way more modern, which is what is it to be a working class 
black Nigerian woman living in London with five children and and having to make do. I mean, the thing is, just saying that, I have such admiration for Bucci Emicheta, what she was able to do. She set her mind on becoming a writer and she did it. She overcame so many odds, so many horrible hardships. And then she was able to make money from writing. She didn't have any qualms about the fact that she wanted to make money. She was not going to strive to break the form of the novel in a particular way. Her self and her life and her intervention in that tradition would do that enough, you know, for her aims. And that she was able to make money and become an internationally renowned author is huge. And I think for that reason, I think there is a place for her and her writing on a list of the books of the century and also for her influence. If mm. Achebe's influence, his opening of doors for others, his helping them to find a particular voice and a particular mode of expression helps to earn him a place on the list. I think that there is space for Abuchi Emicheta, who was an inspiration to Chimamanda Adichie, for example, Bernardine Evaristo. These are writers who were directly inspired by and felt empowered by what Emicheta did. Well, that is our episode on The Bride Price. We hope it didn't cost you too much to get this far. We'd like to thank Abin Abusia and Margaret Busby for talking to us for this episode. All original music was made by me. Thank you, Erica. On the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea. Want to read along? Please do. That's another bride price, if you know what I mean. <laughs> We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at literatepodcast or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Also check out our list on bookshop.org, a really convenient way to order the books we're reading from indie bookstores. And as ever, please support your local library and independent bookshop. Mm -hmm.